Our Old Testament reading today is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Nehemiah is describing a period of famine in the land. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as, as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they promised. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's psalm is Psalm 145, and we will read responsively by whole verse. I will magnify you, O God, my King, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and most worthy to be praised. There is no end of his greatness. As for me, I will be talking of the glorious splendor of your majesty and of all your wondrous works. They shall see the of your marvelous acts, and I also shall 
The remembrance of your abundant goodness shall they proclaim, and they shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, long-suffering and of great kindness. The Lord is loving to everyone, and his mercy is over all his works. All your works praise you, O Lord, and your faithful service be the next to you. They speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power. That your power may be known to the children of men, even the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all ages. The Lord upholds all those who fall, and lifts up all those who are at hand. The eyes of all wait upon you, O Lord, and you give them food in due season. Your boat and wise your hand, and fill all things living with righteousness. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and merciful in all his works. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He also will hear their cry and will help them. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh give thanks unto his holy name forever and ever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our New Testament reading today is Romans chapter 9, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 17. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of the Lord. The gospel lesson this morning comes from Luke chapter 7, verse 36, through the beginning of chapter 8, verse 3. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Luke. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this was who is touching him. She is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Jesus said, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 denarii. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the bigger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And he who is forgiven little, loves little. He said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming the kingdom of God and the good news. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. There was Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chezza, Herod's, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their own means. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. For our sermon passage today, we're continuing in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7. If you have a Bible... Open it up to Luke chapter 7. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are blue Bibles on that book table in the back, which for today's purposes is now the book and cake table, which is how it should be every week. Um, so Luke, end of Luke 7, starting in verse 36. This is a story where Jesus is interacting with two very different groups of people that he likes to spend a lot of time with. Religious people and rank sinners. So think of it this way. It's like insiders and outsiders. And Jesus really spends a lot of time with both of them in the gospel. People who think that they don't need the grace of God because they think that they're kind of doing pretty good by, their, by themselves. And people who are so aware of how outside of, of the mainstream of society that they are. People who are so aware of what their position is that they don't even think they're worthy of getting God's grace. So, insiders and outsiders. This is, this is a short little story, but there's actually kind of three parts to it, and, and I think each part is worth talking about. So, basically think of it this way. There's the setup, and then the story, and then the twist. 
Let me pray for us as we open God's Word together. God, we ask that you would be present with us as we meditate on your Word. We ask that you would be here with us as we seek to to believe more fully in you and as we seek to put your words more into practice. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So, this story starts out with Jesus and a Pharisee. And in fact, in the passage before this, Jesus had also been talking to Pharisees. So this, is a, this whole section is about Jesus talking to the religious leaders of the day. I want to talk about a little bit about who Pharisees were. If you don't know, Pharisees were somewhere between a religious sect or a religious club and a political party. Because at that time, those two things were kind of the same thing. So Pharisees were the people that were trying to keep Israel on the right track, or more specifically, trying to get them back on the right track. At that time, Israel as a nation was identified primarily through the following of God and the keeping of his commandments. God had set them apart in the Old Testament as his chosen people. And at various times, when they fell out of his favor because they disregarded what he had done for them, he removed his protection from them and allowed them to be conquered. And so the belief arose that the way to get God's favor back was to follow the law completely and fully. The Pharisees believed that by following God's law perfectly, they could actually earn their way back into God's good graces and become once again this regional power that was respected despite their tiny size. But God had other plans for how his kingdom was going to expand in the time of Jesus. So the Pharisees had been an influential group about 160 years before Jesus was born. So from about 160 BC, that's when they kind of rose to prominence. And now, in this story in Luke, it's roughly 30 AD. So that's almost 200 years of these people basically being the, the religious watchdogs of Israel. And actually, when you start to read more about the Pharisees, there's a lot to like about them. Like if there were some Pharisees, as a pastor, if there were some Pharisees in my church, like some of what they do is actually pretty good. They, they saw God's law as, as sovereign and unbelievably important. They had a very high view of Scripture. And at this time, of course, it was just the Old Testament. The stuff that we're reading hadn't been written yet. But they had an incredibly high view of Scripture. And they liked to exhort one another. They liked to spur one another on toward good works. But the problem is that they were much, much, much more concerned about the letter of the law than they would oftentimes skip right over the spirit of why God gave these laws to people in the first place. And so what that means is that more often than not, they were missing the character of God. They saw God's law as so important that they wanted to basically build a big bubble around it called the oral Torah or the oral law. This was a thing at that time. So not only, they were saying that not only can people not do what God's law forbids, but they couldn't even come within a country mile of breaking God's law. That's how, that's how much the Pharisees wanted to protect law-breaking so that they could be restored to a place of national power. So think of it this way. Um, if God's law said, okay, you see this big field here, this nice lush field, but do you see how at the edge of it there's a cliff that drops down about 200 yards? Okay, you are allowed to play in this field and do whatever you want, but let's set up a 10-foot barrier at the edge of the field, and you can't go 
closer than 10 feet from the cliff because I don't want you to fall off the cliff. I don't want you to hurt yourselves. So, this is God's law. Play in the field, stay 10 feet from the cliff. Not a problem. Because God's law is ultimately for our good. God didn't give us rules so that he could punish us. He gave us a pattern of how life works best in the kingdom of God. That's what the law is. It's a reflection of his character and his nature. So, God's law is for our good. Big field, 10 feet. Cliff. The Pharisees come along and say, keeping God's law is so unbelievably important that we don't want people to even, we want to build on God's law. We want to add to it. So instead of 10 feet, well, if we say 10 feet, somebody might not know what 10 feet is. They might actually end up nine feet from the cliff and they'd be breaking God's law and we don't want that. So let's say 20 feet. I know God's law says 10, but the new rule is you can't go more than 20 feet from the field and anything physical like dancing or playing games, that needs to stop 30 feet away from the cliff. You see how we're helping you? We're helping you to, to not break the law. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were constantly adding extra rules to God's law, theoretically, so that, they could, so that Israel could once again be in God's favor and regain power. And they knew the law. The Pharisees, at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, the scribes, they knew the law better than anybody. Based on the picture that we have of them in the Gospels, they didn't have a whole lot of time in their lives for people who didn't quite fit the picture of what a lawkeeper would be. They didn't have a ton of time for people who so clearly and publicly broke the law that they could easily be called sinners. And so we start this scene with three people, Jesus, Simon the Pharisee, and this woman. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at table. Now, in the previous passage, Jesus had said to the Pharisees, uh, he had said to the Pharisees, look, John the Baptist came, and he didn't eat food or drink, and you said that he had a demon because he wasn't eating food or drink. And then I come along, and I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners, and you say, look, I, th this man Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard because he eats with tax collectors and sinners. So which one is it, Pharisees? How do you want to do dinners together? So Simon the Pharisee seems to realize that Jesus was a wise teacher, and that he might even be a prophet, as a lot of people were saying. And he invites Jesus to dinner. And this would have been the dinner in the house of a dignitary. There would have been a lot of people present. It would have been, for all intents and purposes, a feast. And Jesus would eat with anybody. Anytime anybody invites Jesus to dinner, he shows up. Jesus likes eating and drinking with people. He likes spending time with people, listening to people, and talking to people. The Pharisees were less strict than some of the religious sects, but in order for a sinner or a non-Pharisee to dine with the Pharisee, the Pharisee would have had to actually go through ritual purification first, immersive purification. He would have had to dip himself in water and wash ritually in order to even eat with someone like the third person that we're going to meet. So Simon's having a big dinner at his house with Jesus and what seems like a bunch of other people. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of oil, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his hair with her tears and wiped them up with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet, and she anointed them with the oil. R.C. Sproul, who was a theologian that passed away a couple years ago, had a, has a wonderful book 
about Luke called A Walk with God. And about this scene, he said this. He said, at a, at a big dinner, people might gather, but only if invited. It would have been shocking for someone to come in off the street unannounced, uninvited. But this woman was so desperate to see Jesus. And she brought with her an alabaster vial of, of what was basically perfume. It was not unusual for women in the ancient world to have a bottle of perfume tied around their neck that they could use on special occasions. It was precious, it was expensive. And so this is clearly that kind of special occasion because she is using it to actually anoint the feet of Jesus. Now, about this woman, when it says, when it says in verse 37 that it, she was a woman of the city and a sinner, that's not telling us where she lived and, and that she was a human being and a sinner like the rest of us. Not what it was saying. Let me be blunt. The woman of the city who was a sinner was a prostitute. And apparently, everybody knew that. Somebody who was such a, a public and flagrant sinner that her identity was wrapped up in these sinful actions. That that's, that's who she was identified as. She is a sinner. This is not a person that a Pharisee like Simon would have any amount of time for. I was reading it this week and reflecting on how she was identified. I thought about, you know, how many times have I done that? How many times have, have I said to somebody, well, clearly you know right from wrong. I mean, every Jew in Israel at that time would have known broadly what the law was, so it wasn't like she was ignorant of it. So Simon would have had to say, clearly she knows right from wrong. Why does she keep doing bad things? She must be a sinner. How many times have I done that? You must be a, a terrible person because you keep doing these things. You must be a sinner. And so if you're ever able to, like, pull your life together, let me know. We'll hang out. I'll invite you to my dinner. But here's Simon thinking, if this Jesus really was a prophet, like apparently people were saying, he would know what sort of woman this was that was touching him. I mean, if she had touched him as a Pharisee, he would have had to go right back in the holy bath and all the ritual purification. Like, there's no way that this would have been okay. And so Simon is starting to doubt that Jesus might even be who, who people are saying that he is. If this guy is really a holy man of God, he would have known the, the character of this woman who's touching him. And as in so many other places in the gospel, Jesus gives an illustration to insiders about who the true insiders are. He gives a story to religious people, people who think that they are good and that others are bad, he gives a story about who the real members of his flock are and why. So, part two of this is the story. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of those will love him more? And Simon says, the one, I suppose, for whom canceled the bigger, he canceled the bigger debt. Jesus says to him, you have judged correctly. It's a simple little story with a very easy question, right? Like a child could have figured out that answer. So it's not like Simon was, was the, this great insight penetrated to the, the heart of Jesus' unanswerable question. You know, little debt, big debt. Neither one of them can pay, and that's the key here. Neither one of the people in this story has the means to work out their own debt. The person to whom the debt was owed decided to just wipe the debt away. There's a picture of this. This is a, 
There's a reason that I chose the Nehemiah passage in the Old Testament today. Because what the people of Israel were doing at that time is they were lending money to one another, but charging them an interest that the, the people they were lending to could never pay. And so Nehemiah, calling on people to imitate the character of God, said to them, I want you to stop with this, this interest payment stuff. This is not right. You're trying, to, you're trying to serve the less fortunate among you, and you're charging them interest that they can never pay, and they're going into slavery as a result of this. And the people, realizing that they were far from the character of God, repented, and they, and they wiped away the interest. That's what the moneylender here is doing, except it's even bigger. Because neither one of these people, the $50 person and the $500 person, neither one of them can ever hope to pay their debt. And instead of just saying, well, let's cancel the interest on it, let's, ex let's put you on a payment plan, the moneylender just wipes their debts clean. It says the, the slate is wiped clean. Your debts are, and this is a key word, your debts are forgiven. Who's going to be more devoted to this moneylender? Who's going to be more willing to, to do what he asks? Who's going to be more excited about seeing him? The one with the huge debt. That's why this woman, this woman of the city, a sinner, that's why this prostitute was so excited to see Jesus that she would break all of these cultural norms and go into this house unannounced and uninvited because she was so desperate to be with Jesus. She wanted to be with him. She wanted to serve him. She was weeping in the sight of him with joy or tears. We don't know. But she was overcome with emotion by being in his presence that she was weeping. And then she began to use those tears to clean his feet and wiping them dry with the hair of her head. And remember, in Israel, at that time, shoes didn't exist. When people would come into a house, oftentimes one of the first things that you would do is offer to, to have their feet wiped by a servant, but you would offer to have their feet wiped because their feet were dirty and gross. They had sandals. There were no paved roads. Wiping them with her hair. She was so overcome with love, devotion to Jesus, because she knew what her huge debt was. Right? Simon the Pharisee knew her public reputation, and that was enough for him to not want to engage with her. That was enough for him that he didn't even want to see. But the woman knew the huge debt that she had. Simon thought he had a $50 debt, right? But he probably didn't realize that he could never hope to work that off on his own. He didn't realize that, that even if he was correct, that he was the $50 guy, that he would never, ever be capable of working himself out of that debt. He didn't love the moneylender. He didn't love God enough because he didn't see just how clearly in debt he really was. But the woman did. The woman knew very well her many sins and offenses. She knew what she had done and what she had left undone. And she knew who Jesus was. That's the thing. She knew who he was. She couldn't have known everything yet. She, he hadn't died yet. She couldn't have known that he was going to be crucified. She couldn't have known that three days after that, he would be raised from the dead in order that everyone who followed along after Jesus could also have eternal life and be raised to new life. She didn't know that. She couldn't have. But she knew enough to know that his character was true, that the words he was saying about the kingdom of God were true, and that to follow in his footsteps 
was the path of life. So, after Simon pipes up with the right answer, Jesus says, which one of these two people, the $500 person or the $50 person, which one loves the moneylender more? Simon says, the one with the bigger debt. And here we come to the twist of the story. And it is literally, literally a twist. Verse 43, Simon answers, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the bigger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Verse 44, and then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? So in order to know what that really means, let's talk a little bit about mealtimes in first century Jewish Palestine. If you read the Gospels, you'll often hear the phrase reclining at table. Kind of a weird expression. And if you think of it in terms of how we eat dinner now, you kind of think of it like leaning back in your chair after a big meal, right? Like sitting at a table like this and kind of leaning back in your chair. That's not what it was. In Jesus' day, when you go to someone's house to eat dinner, there were no chairs. Tables were very low to the ground. People would sit on blankets or pillows. And after the meal, to relax, you couldn't exactly lean back because there was nothing behind you and you'd fall over. So what they would do when they would recline at table, they would actually lean onto the table and stick their legs out behind them. Think of it like that. So as this woman is around this dinner table, basically she's in the back next to all the feet where the servants would be. The woman has literally been on the outside the entire time of this dinner. And in fact, the text gives us a clue of how they needed to be sitting because it says, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, she came in and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed him with the ointment. So she's standing behind him. If he's in a chair sitting there, there's no way that she's going to kiss his feet because he was, laying, he was laying back as they all would have been. His head would be on the table. His feet would be away from it. He's on the outside. Everybody else is on the inside. And Jesus is with Simon around Simon's table in Simon's home. But what he does is he turns. He would have had to because it said he turned to face the woman. He would have had to turn away from Simon and over his shoulder say, Simon, you see this woman. Do you know the level of disrespect that Simon might have felt? You don't have to know all the ins and outs of hospitality culture of first century Jewish Palestine to know that if, if, if someone's a guest in your home and you're talking to them and they suddenly turn their back and start talking to somebody else, it might not feel super great. Jesus completely, physically shifts his focus away from Simon and onto this woman. Do you see this woman? Now look, I don't, it's easy in our, in, in the way that we use language today, it's easy to ask the word see there to do a lot of heavy lifting that it doesn't, that it doesn't need. Um, it's not saying, like, you know, if, if, if someone comes to you and, and tells you a problem and you can say, you know, I see, like, I understand what you're going through. That's not this. This is not that. That's a whole different word. Um, this means see like, I see that chair. There's three words for see in the New Testament. There's only one that means to understand or to identify with. This isn't one of them. Well, what Jesus is saying is, you see her? You see her? Do you see what she's been doing? Let's talk about what she's been doing. Because the subtle dig that Jesus is making it, it's 
Simon is about this woman's actions, her behavior. Simon is offended by her presence, and he's offended by the actions that she's doing out in the street. But Jesus wants to talk about what she's doing here. Verse 44, do you see this woman? Here we go. When I entered your house, then Jesus gives him three examples. When I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. She, she wiped, wet her feet. She wet my feet with her tears. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with oil. I want to read three very short passages from the Old Testament, the Bible that the Pharisees would have known better than anybody else at the time. You get, this is Jesus. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. This is Genesis 18. The Lord coming to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. When Abraham saw the three men that were standing there, he ran to the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Please, let a little water be brought, so that we may wash your feet and rest yourselves under this tree. Jesus, talking to Simon, says, You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since the moment I got in here. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Whenever a man came near to pay homage to the king... The king would put out his hand, take hold of the man, kiss him. Jesus speaking to Simon, you didn't anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with oil. Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The Pharisees were so caught up in keeping the letter of the law of God. They were so caught up in trying to in trying to build themselves back up to be God's favored people. They missed the character of God. Over and over in the Old Testament, these practices of washing someone's feet, of giving them, greeting them with a holy kiss, of pouring, of anointing them with oil, these are things that people did. Simon the Pharisee didn't do any of them. This woman did. This woman that, Simon, that you don't even want to associate with. This woman who doesn't matter to you. This woman that Jesus turned away from the religious leaders of the day so that he could see her. This woman who you see as bad while you position yourself as good. You didn't do any of these things. He did. Jesus is basically challenging the religious leaders, the insiders. Who understands God's word better than you do, Simon? His prostitutes. Who understands God's love better than you do, son? This prostitute. To whom has it been revealed that this Jesus might be just a little bit more than a rabbi or a teacher? It's been revealed to her. She knows the depths of her sin. She wants to be in the presence of Jesus. You don't ever need, you don't ever need to convince addicts and criminals and outcasts. You don't ever need to convince them how broken they are. You never have to convince them of their guilt. The tough part is convincing good people, the insiders, like Simon, about their own brokenness. And the thing is, the thing that each of us needs to realize that Simon didn't get, the thing that each of us needs to realize is that none of us are the $50 sinner. All of us are the, the $500 sinner. 
Some people come to this realization quicker than others, like this woman did. One of the ways that the Holy Spirit sanctifies us more and more as we follow Christ as we get older and older is not that we start to get better and better and better and better and better until we're just about up to Jesus' level and shine and bright like a diamond right on our deathbed. It's not how life typically works. What does happen is that the Holy Spirit starts to reveal to us more and more as we follow Jesus further and further. The Holy Spirit starts to reveal to us more and more just how much of a $500 sinner we are. He starts to show us just the, the depths of, of all the little places in our life where sin can creep in. The Holy Spirit paints us a clear picture of his glory and our humanity. And so when we remember all those sins, but also at the same time, we remember that Christ has bled and died for those sins, the enormity of our offense then contributes to the enormity of his glory and of our love for him when we see what he has done for us. Then that works itself out as it did for this woman and our desire to be with him more, to love him more, to serve him more. And, and I want to go back to one little detail in this story. And this is, this is the point where we depart from what the scripture clearly says. I want to be clear about that. This is my little supposition to end on a, a note of hope. Remember about Luke. I said when we started the Gospel of Luke that Luke was never one of the disciples. He was never a follower of Jesus. He probably never knew Jesus in his lifetime. Luke was a, was a Greek Jew who ended up being a companion of the Apostle Paul. And Luke we know, used sources for his Gospels. He used written accounts, and he interviewed people. So at some point, he went back into Israel and was actually interviewing people who had been around during the time of Jesus. And in verse 39 of this passage, it says an interesting thing about Simon. It doesn't say what Simon was, was saying. It says what Simon was thinking to himself. Not what he was saying out loud, what he was thinking to himself. How could Luke have known that? Who's the only person who probably would have been able to tell Luke this? Simon himself. And, and why, as Luke is going around interviewing people, and we surmise that he probably interviewed Mary, and possibly her cousin Elizabeth, and any of the living disciples, and a bunch of people along Jesus' journey, why would he have known to interview Simon himself? And I think... I have to think that it's because Simon had become a Christ follower. I have to think that Simon, at some point, had become part of the church. Luke would have been introduced to him. Maybe there's another explanation, but I can't think of one. So, because if Simon didn't become a Christ follower, then it's just, yeah, I had this guy to dinner once. Um, there was a hooker there, and then a couple later, he was a couple years later, he was killed. Uh, some of his followers were still around, but they've all moved to Antioch now. Like, if you if you don't think that Jesus is God then that probably wouldn't be all that memorable. I can't imagine Luke would have even found out who Simon was. But if, if the Bible is trustworthy, and if Luke's account is accurate, then this couldn't have come from anyone but Simon himself. If that's true, I think that it has to mean that at some point Simon became a Christ follower, which was the point of the story that Jesus was telling. Jesus does not, tell, Jesus does not call people to follow him in order to shut them out. He offers grace to both the outsider and the insider, both of whom need it in equal measure. 
but usually only one of them realizes it. And I like to think that this, this insider, this proud, legalistic Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee, at some point saw his desperate need for Jesus, saw that he was a sinner just like she was, and worse, maybe, followed Christ. Because Jesus comes to call everybody. If, if there's two extremes of the legalistic law follower and the prostitute, and Jesus is for both of them, that means that he's for everybody in the middle as well. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus came to call all of us, which means that there is hope for all of us. Because Jesus is not just, as Simon thought, a rabbi or a wise teacher. And he's not even just a prophet, as Simon thought he might have been. Jesus actually illustrates here exactly who he is at the end of the story. He turns to her and he says the most shocking and blasphemous thing that he could have possibly said. He said, your sins are forgiven. Last year, as, as we were going through the Gospel of Mark, I was talking a lot about the idea of the messianic secret, that when Jesus came, he didn't kick off his public ministry by saying, hi, I'm God. What he did was more often than not, as people would realize who he was, especially demons, because they already knew exactly who he was. And so he was constantly telling people, people and demons, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't tell anyone. He was constantly charging people to not reveal who he was. But in moments like this, he starts to subtly show rather than tell who he is. So people who say that the Gospels never explicitly say that Jesus is God, they're just, they're just mistaken. It's not true. Jesus might not be telling with words, but he's certainly showing that he has the power to forgive sins. And it if the Jews, especially the Pharisees, who knew the Bible very well, they would know that only God can forgive sins. They would know that all of the Old Testament series of sacrifices and rituals and purification were never actually, those things themselves could never forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And so sitting around this table with this religious leader, with these religious leaders, they're looking at him saying, who is this? who has the power to forgive sins. So what can that make Jesus? Well, it either means that he's knowingly making it up, makes him a liar, or he's completely nuts because he actually thinks that he can do this, but he can't, or he's telling the truth, and he's exactly who he says he is. And the prostitute seems to understand this, while the, while the religious expert doesn't. And because of her understanding, she loved him. She was desperate to get close to him. He was desperate to show her adoration for him and to serve him. All of our other scriptures this morning, I'm going to close with this. The other scriptures, Psalm, Romans, most of the songs that we're singing are about the transcendent majesty of God. God, the, the creator of the universe who flung the stars into their places, the one who, who created and ordained and sustains everything. And that's true. And that same God is the one who, in this small moment, looks on this woman, outcast, overlooked by society, labeled a sinner, and he sees her, and he points to her as an example of his kingdom. The same God, the God who created and sustains everything, will also look down on individual people overlooked people and, and 
to all of them, to the religious leader and to the prostitute, he says, come to me. Come to me. God, we thank you for this example of a woman who is a sinner just like we are. As we start to behold more and more who you are and what you have done, may we start to to have that same amount of fervor, Lord, to worship you, to serve you, to be near to you. We can't do it in person right now, Lord. We can't kiss your feet and anoint them with oil. But we also know that you are present with us, that we are united to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that you are present among us when we are gathered as your body. We pray for that same level of clarity that this woman had, that our actions that come from that may be as loving and worshiping. Pray this in Jesus' name.